with us for the last uh, couple of months, we actually studied through um, the first letter that Peter wrote to the church who was scattered about Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He was writing to Jewish believers. He was writing to Gentile believers, all followers of Jesus that had been scattered because of persecution, because of circumstances. They found themselves in uh, trying times, and, and they're in the Roman Empire. And so, you know, the way that they follow Jesus wholeheartedly uh, calls for persecution. It calls sometimes for suffering. Sometimes as a believer, God calls you to do things that are hard and that are countercultural, not just for the sake of being a protester, but for the sake of being obedient to the simple commands of Jesus. And so he told them in First Peter, I want you to realize that the hope that we have been given is not a dead hope. It's not something that's in vain. He says, you've been born again. You're a new creation in Christ, and you've been born again to this living, very real, going to be fulfilled hope. That the hope that we talk about from Scripture isn't something that's, you know, like just a fairy tale. It's not some, we can't see it, taste it, and touch it. It's not advertised every day on the TV. It's something that it's very easy to make that a, a back burner issue and everything else becomes more important. And he says living for Christ is something that ultimately will pay off in the end, but you've got to trust that his promises will be fulfilled. But then in 2 Peter, he writes to all believers, and he says this, that um, you are to, now that you've been saved to this living hope, you need to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That our faith that we've been saved for, and, and because of what Jesus has done, it, just salvation is not the goal. Our salvation is something that Jesus wrought practically, but he wants to sanctify us. He doesn't want to leave us where we were. If you're a new creation in Christ, ultimately, over the long haul, you should become more and more like Christ. And if you don't, I would question whether or not you've actually been born again. And so in 2 Peter, it's once again Simon Peter, the most vocal, I would believe, of the apostles, is writing to the church. He says, he begins his letter by saying, Simon Peter a bondservant, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He, he says who it's from because they would be writing in scrolls, and you wouldn't write at the end who it was from. They would want to know at the very beginning, who wrote this, who's this from? Because context is everything. Text messages are sometimes difficult. If you get one from an unknown person and they say, hey, where are you at? You're like, I don't know. Who are you? Do I want to tell you where I'm at? Right? You, you need to know who it's from. And so, he says, Simon Peter. And then he says, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. A bondservant is kind of a cleaned up Bible version way of saying slave. He lists himself as a slave of Jesus before he lists himself as a apostle of Jesus. An apostle is a title that, you know, it kind of sounds like, yeah, I'm, I was sent by God. That's what it means to be sent by Jesus, a messenger a herald of the gospel. The angels are heralds that God sends to speak in the Old Testament. And now as believers, we've kind of taken that role. I don't know about you guys, but if I saw an angel, I'd be pretty amazed. If I met an apostle after reading the, the New Testament, I'd be pretty amazed. These guys followed Jesus. Many of them died for the faith. They, they really believed what they said they believed. 
It wasn't just words. And so um, he lists himself, though, before he ever says, I've been sent by Jesus. He says, I'm a slave of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I'm giving my whole life to him. Not just part of it, not just a piece of my week, not just a little bit of my time, but everything in my life now revolves around him instead of everything in my life revolving around me. And I tell you what, you can tell the difference between someone that believes that life revolves around them versus life revolving around the Lord. And so he says, I am a bondservant an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word bondservant does not mean that he was bought by sl- or stolen by, away from by slave traders and then forced to labor for his master. A bondservant in the Old Testament was somebody that had a debt. And once that debt was paid, they wouldn't pay it by, you know, going to work and then making payments and paying interest. They would have to pay their debts by giving themselves over as a slave to serve their master until they'd worked enough to pay off their debt. Essentially, they wouldn't get paid. They would get paid by not having to pay. Their labor would pay for what they owed monetarily. And so after their debt was paid, they had two choices. Go back to life as it was, or, you know what? My master is awesome, and he's treated me so well. He did way better with my life than I ever did when I was my own king or my own master. And so now, rather than going back to where I lived, I, I don't know how to handle money. I don't know how to steward my family. I, I just want to serve this guy. I want to live on his property. And so he'd say, hey, I want to be your slave. I want to be your bondservant. No longer because I owe you anything, but because you paid my debt, you took so good a care of me. Now I just want to serve you. I just want to be around you. The way that you've treated me has been so well that I can't imagine going back to my old life. So they would take the servant to the doorpost of the house. He would lay his ear on there. They would take an awl, pierce his earlobe through, and put a gold ring. And that would signify to everybody, I'm now this guy's bondservant. I'm his. And I want to live here. And I want to serve him. And I want to have to worry about taking care of my own needs, paying my own bills, He's going to pay my bills. I'm going to serve him just because I'm grateful. And that's the picture that Peter is painting here. I'm not serving Jesus because I have to. I'm serving Jesus because he's loved me so much. How can I do anything else with my life? So Peter says, I'm a bond servant of Jesus. I'm a bond slave. And it was this term of love. I've been loved and I just want to love him in return. It's gratitude. Peter's motivation for serving Jesus was not begrudgingly. It wasn't like, oh, I got to go to church. I guess I ought to serve God. You know, what do you want me to do? I guess he's going to send me to Africa or, you know, whatever. It was, man, I can't wait to do something for Jesus today. Just grateful for what he's done for me. And so he says this, and then he says also an apostle of Jesus. He recognized that his call was to be sent by Jesus, to be a herald of the good news, to be a messenger. So then he says who he's writing to, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm writing to you who have obtained precious faith with us. The apostle Peter in the last letter did not elevate himself above those he was writing to. 
he sees himself not as a father, but as a brother. He says, I'm writing to you who have the same precious faith that you've obtained because of what God's done, the same faith that I have, the same faith that he's practicing, the same life that he's living, he obtained the same way that you and I did because of what Jesus did for him. I think oftentimes we look at the apostles, we look at Matthew or you know, some of these, these writers in the New Testament, and we're like, we elevate them to a position where it's like, man, these are leaders in the faith. I, I don't think I could ever get there. But the reality is they just let the Lord be the Lord. They, they simply read his word. They, they believed what he said. They lived it out. And the, everything that came out of that was just fruit. And so he says this precious faith that we've obtained is by the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is what has obtained salvation for all mankind to receive. Now, he says, grace and peace, verse 2, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of God's divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So his blessing over them is he wants them to experience the grace and the peace but he also wants it to be multiplied. He wants grace and peace to be multiplied in the lives of those he's writing to. He says the way to experience and receive the grace and peace that he's offering is through the knowledge of God, and he says specifically the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. How often have you wondered, Lord, why don't I have the peace that someone else has? Why haven't I experienced the peace that God has promised in his word? And so we look for peace. Uh, we've just gotten through an entire season where families all over the place, all over the world, at least in the United States, have spent their summer looking for peace. You may not look at it like that, but where, what do we look at vacation for? We, we want to find a place to go get rest. We want to find a place that we can be away from it all. And so we load up in the car, we take our family to another location, and I I'm here, I'll confess from my perspective. I look towards vacation, because I don't get much, but I look there, because I'm like, you know what, I've always been, I've been wanting to read this book for forever, so I'm going to jam it in my bag, we're going to load up the camper, we're going to drive to this location, and then there will be peace, and then I'll get to spend some time with the Lord. So what really happens We, we go to a different location, but we take everything with us. We, we take our stuff, we take our kids, we take our animals, we take everything that we have, really. Many of us have, now I have a small camper, but it's pretty much home away from home. We take our big campers. We basically hang out together just in a different spot. And we go, things will be different here because I'm in a different location. I'm detached, but then we have our cell phones which now have us connected to everything still. So really nothing's different except we spent a bunch of gas money, we got a hotel, 
or we got to a, a park, or we went to the beach, or whatever, and then we get there, and we find out, I have not only the same amount of peace that I had before, which wasn't much, but now <laughs> I'm here, and now I got to plan all this stuff, and I have less peace, because now we got to deal with logistics, and so we get there, we realize that we have the same amount of peace that we did at home, except now we spent a bunch of money to find that out. And there's nothing wrong with that. We had a bunch of memories that we made on our vacation. I'm sure you guys did too. You know, for those of you that didn't get to go on vacation, you're money ahead. That's all I'm saying. But the reality is, we want peace from God, and He promises it to us. And that peace from God comes through knowing Him by being saved by Him, positionally made right with God so that we have eternity to spend with Him. But it also comes from knowing that we don't have to know ourselves more to have, be at peace with ourselves. Knowing Him is actually what provides peace. Reading what He did for people and recognizing He wants to do those same things for us. And so He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Knowing God is what will make you whole. Knowing him, not knowing about him, but knowing him personally, what he has personally done for you. And look at this, verse 3 says, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What do you lack? What are you searching for? What are you trying to add to your life that will make you feel better? I'm telling you, based on what Peter has written here, None of those things will matter as much as knowing Jesus. His divine power has given to you, his son or daughter, everything. Look up the Greek. It means literally everything that pertains to your life. The circumstances that you live in, the weaknesses you have, everything that you're worried about falling short because you don't have this or that or the other, it's given to you. His divine nature. His divine power has been given to us to give us all things that pertain to life in this world, this broken world, and godliness, being more like Jesus. So your weaknesses, your frailties, your lack of finances, whatever you think will hold you back, none of those things matter because God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus. You, you want to have added to your faith what you need to live as God's called you? Know Jesus. If you want peace, get to know Jesus. Spend time with him. And of course, um, he says then, to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Peter spent an entire chapter in 1 Peter talking about how God chose you, called you, made you his own, so remember that. When life gets a little shaky, I think God's forgotten me. He won't forget you. He called you. He chose you. He picked you for the team. And it wasn't because of what you had to offer. It was usually because of what you lacked. God gets glory when broken people glorify him with their lives because everybody looks at you and I and they go, only God could do that. And, it, and, it, and if they look at you and say, well, they could have done that on their own, then it wasn't God. It was probably you. But here's what he says. He says, by which, 
Now, I'm, I'm getting in the middle of a sentence. I recognize that. He says, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. He called us by glory and virtue. What does glory mean? Well, I, I looked it up because I didn't know. I mean, I kind of had an idea. But the word glory means high renown or honor won by notable achieve, achievements. So he's called us by glory. He's called us by honor won by notable achievements. He has the right to call you and I because he has been honored because he's achieved notable things. He has done all things to make us right before God. He has provided the perfect sacrifice. He has lived the perfect life. He has died for us. Greater love has no man than that he would lay down his life for his friends. The greatest superhero ever, right? How many of you guys like superhero movies? Me too. They're awesome. Who doesn't want to watch Captain America? I mean, that guy's awesome. <laughs> you guys. Who doesn't long for a superhero? What is our infatuation with heroes? Our infatuation with heroes is because the broken world we live in, and we want truth and justice. We want justice to be served. Now, usually it's on others, not on me. You know, we kind of, you know, I want justice for everybody else. I, you know, we, let's whitewash the stuff that I've done wrong. But the point is, is that Jesus has, has provided great and precious promises through glory and virtue. What does virtue mean? Behavior showing high moral standards. Virtue wasn't talked about anymore. Virtuous character is not praised. Uh, how many followers you have, that's praised. How many friends you have. My daughter has been in two days of school, and I go, are you excited about school? She goes, I have so many friends. I didn't ask you that. I don't know what that has to do with anything. You know, what do you think about school? I've got four friends now. What are their names? I don't know. <laughs> Great friends. You know, like, <laughs> could you ask them their names and memorize them, and then we'll talk about having friends. But he, God has one honor. He's owned honor by notable achievements, and he has magnificence and great beauty. That's glory. He has by virtue called us. He showed high moral standards in calling those who don't deserve to be called. And then we've been given great and exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of God's divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He saved us. He's promised things to us. But then he also has helped us escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. He's, he's the best escape artist. He's given us his power, and he's also helped us to escape the corruption that's in the world. What is corruption? Corruption is what happens to your stuff when it gets old and it stops working, and starts to rust. We can escape corruption. We can escape, uh, I think I looked that word up too. No. Yeah, I did. Dishonest, fraudulent conduct. That's like the opposite of virtue. Virtue is this high moral standard shown in your behavior, not just in your ideals. Virtue is something that you live out. Um, but corruption is dishonest, fraudulent conduct. You'll know them by their works, is what Jesus said. 
You'll know them by the fruit that produced in their life. But he says, by glory and virtue, you have been given great and precious promises. And through these promises, because of he's promised these things, he's made us partakers of his divine nature. And in Luke chapter 24, he said he would give his Holy Spirit to us. So that's his divine nature living in us. It's the same thing we do with our kids. We have certain moral standards. We have certain ways that we live and we impart them to our children. Now, obviously, a lot of the time people say, man, you must be so-and-so's kid. You look just like them because of our outward appearance. But have you ever noticed that somebody is just like their parents in their character? It happens. They spend time with them. They share their ideals with them. They share their philosophy on life, you know, and, and you become like them, the way you talk, the way that you live. And so he's given us great and precious promises. He's helped us escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. And he's also made us partakers of his divine nature. He's given us everything we need to succeed. He's like the best dad ever. How many of you want your kids to succeed? How many of you had parents that wanted you to succeed? So they gave you what they thought you needed in order to provide a seedbed, if you will, to succeed. The same way we do gardens. In a garden, you put soil in there, you take out the weeds, you plant the plants, you water everything, you, you maintain it, and you do all of that so that it has the right conditions. Now, you can get bad plants, that don't produce any fruit. But you got to make sure it's got sunlight. You got to do everything you can to make sure it has the best opportunity to succeed as a plant. What makes a successful plant? A fruitful one. What makes a successful Christian? A fruitful one. One that produces fruit, which Jesus said actually glorifies God. Now, he goes on in the next six verses and talks about supplementing your faith. He says, but also for this very reason. Now, what was the reason? Because God's provided salvation. He's given us great and precious promises. It cost him everything, his life. But then he's also helped us to escape corruption and given us his divine nature. So for this very reason, now that seems like a lot of reasons, but he says, for this reason, God's done everything to make it possible for you to grow as a believer. He says, therefore, for this very reason, give diligence. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. He says, for if these things are yours and they abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you have ever questioned whether or not you've been saved? You don't have to raise your hand. I doubted it. 
and I have had moments where I've doubted whether or not I was truly a follower. There's many scriptures that should cause you to go, am I really in the faith? Do I really live out and believe what I say I believe, or is this me putting on an act? We can fool ourselves. But he's just gotten done telling us that God's provided the perfect circumstances for us to do well in our faith. But he says, for this very reason, give diligence. Now, do our works save us? Hopefully you're thinking, no, obviously not. Scripture teaches us that it's by grace we've been saved, not of works, lest one of us would start to get proud and boast about it. It's God's will that works in us, to gives us the ability and the will to do for his good pleasure is what Scripture teaches. He's prepared works beforehand that we should simply walk in them. But I still have a part in that. God's not made you a robot yet, has he? You walk around going, I must do the will of the Father. You know, like, we don't, because that's not relationship. If you put a chip in your kids' heads so they would obey every command, it wouldn't be as enjoyable. When my daughter does the right thing for the right reasons, man, it's enjoyable. Because she's not being forced. She recognizes what's the right way and what's the wrong way, and she does it willingly. It means something to me, because she made a choice. God doesn't force us to do anything. But what he does through the pen of the Apostle Peter here is he says, give all diligence to add to your faith. Notice what it doesn't say. Give all diligence to add to your salvation. You've already been saved. There's nothing you can add to that. He says, give all diligence to add to your faith. I struggle sometimes trusting the Lord. Maybe some of you do too. Doing the simple things that he's called me to do, whether I'm worried about what somebody will think, whether I'm worried about the results of what's going to happen, I struggle with it. And yet what he says here is if you'll give diligence to these things, you'll actually be fruitful and you will not be barren. Now, I think that's redundant. He says in verse 8, if these things are yours and they overflow or they abound in your life, you will not be barren, nor will you be unfruitful. Those things both mean the same thing. When God repeats something in his word, it means something. Not not only will you not be barren, but you will also not be unfruitful. Those two, so my point is, he goes there and he says, give all diligence to add to your faith. And he lists out this big thing that you might be tempted to feel like is a to-do list. I have to do these things to prove myself to God. But they're not a to-do list. He says, I want you to add these things to your life because they will make you fruitful. Just like someone who is working out starts taking vitamin supplements or drinking the protein drink or watching the YouTube video on how to work out or, you know, whatever it might be. Baseball players, they, they figure out how to throw a pitch or, you know, how to exercise their arms so they can throw faster. I've watched Stephen do it for years. You know, he's always pitching. He's always acting it out. You know, figuring out how to bat. Go to the batting cage. Now, you can be on a baseball team and not have a batting cage at your house or not even go to the batting cage, right? But are you doing everything you possibly can to make yourself better? No. So is the coach going to play you every time if you're not the best you can be? Not necessarily, and he shouldn't. He should play the players that are the most ready. 
But that said, as believers, why do we think that God saved us and now I just go out and do what he wants, but I'm never going to work out? I'll play on game day, but I don't have to show up to practice. Any coach in the whole world that plays a kid that don't show up to practice is not a good coach. Because if they're not dedicated enough to practice, why would you let them play in the big game? Now, God still lets you play in the big game if you don't show up to practice. But you're more likely to make errors. You're more likely to fumble. You're less likely to be boldly used. And so the question is, do you want to be boldly used by God? And if the answer is yes, and you're frustrated because you feel like you're never used by God, perhaps it's because you're not ready for the game. Perhaps it's because you've been sitting on the sidelines going, why isn't God using me? And so the thing we can get busy at doing is getting ready. So in verse 5, he says, give all diligence to add to your faith virtue. Now, we already looked up what virtue means. It means behavior showing high moral standards. Act in accordance with God's character. His high moral standard, there is none higher. There is none greater. Read the gospel accounts. See how Jesus interacted with people and then start trying to do that. I guarantee if you start trying to live with the virtue, showing the high moral standard in your conduct, it will cause you to need Jesus more and to beg him for help. And that will grow you. Uh, He then goes on to say, to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. Now, the word knowledge means facts, information, and skills acquired through experience and education, both theoretical and practical. Now, I used to get frustrated. I'd go to class, and they would want to teach me information, but it was always theory. And I'm like, okay, but how am I going to use this, especially math class? Why is this useful? Well, uh, we can't tell you. We're just showing you how to do the problems right now, right? But then you get to physics, and you get to some of the classes I took, statics and dynamics, and you go, wow, everything that moves has these equations involved in it. And if you want to predict how it's going to act before you spend all the money to build something, you need the maths. You need that. And yesterday I was cutting paneling and I realized how much I needed math because I put the first piece in and then realized everything's out of square. So now I had to measure one end of the panel. It was 47 inches. And the other end of the panel, 45 inches. So then I'm going to trace the line for 84 inches from one point to the other. Here's the problem. I got a four-foot straight level. What's the measurement in the middle so I can get halfway and then keep going the right distance? I had to use something called integration. I hadn't used that for years. What do you need math for? Everything. Do I like that? No. But do I like going back to Menards and picking up another piece of paneling because I cut it wrong? No. So what do I got to do? You got to use what I've learned. These are tools in our tool belt. Knowing Jesus personally will help you to trust him when things get shaky, when you're worried about wasting your efforts. Is this something Jesus really wants me to do? What would Jesus do? Like, what, what did he do? And then you can remember in those moments, okay, I can trust him. He's trustworthy. So adding to your knowledge self-control. Now, self-control is something very helpful for the believer. Uh, Not only that, but it's a fruit of the Spirit. Um, Self-control means practicing restraint 
emotionally, uh, practicing restraint in your desires, practicing restraint in your behavior in difficult situations. Fruit of the Spirit, in this case, one of them is self-control. It's evidence of the Spirit of God in a believer. If you do not have self-control, you're not letting the fruit of the Spirit be produced in you. You need to practice it. How do I know I have to have the fruit of the Spirit? Exercise it. It's a muscle you've been given if you have the Holy Spirit, but you've got to use it. Now, many of us are, are not apt to do that, myself included. We give ourselves a pass. Well, I, I don't feel like it. I, I don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. But showing self-control will actually reveal Jesus to those around you. He says, add to your faith self-control, and to self-control, add perseverance. Perseverance means to persist despite difficulty or delay in completion. To persist, to keep going, to keep trying, to keep moving. We need that as believers. He says, add to perseverance, godliness. Godliness actually means like God, um, in step with his desires and his will. Add to godliness, brotherly kindness. This isn't something that happens naturally. It's something we have to practice. Showing kindness, loving each other as brothers. The word there for love, because in the Greek there's more than just one word for love. It's not just love, I love a cheeseburger, and I love my wife. Those are two totally different kinds of love, hopefully, right? But brotherly love is what we call the Greek word phileo. Not phileo fish, (laughs) but the word we get from Philadelphia. It's a brotherly love. It's you treat someone like they're your blood brother. Um, and, and that's sometimes easier to do than others. Brotherly love can look different, right? The same kind of brotherly love with my brother and I didn't always look good. Sometimes it was brotherly unlove, hate. Um, but he says, practice brotherly love. And this is towards each other. And I like this because um, I think sometimes... Um, yeah. Forgot what I was thinking. Add to your faith brotherly love, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, add love. Now, why would that need to be added other than that word for love is actually agape? And that love is called sacrificial love. It's the love that will cost you something. And so he says, if all of these things abound in your life, virtue, self-control, knowledge of Jesus, Uh, perseverance, uh, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness adds to that love. If these things are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And it says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Now, there was a time in the life of King David where he had become short-sighted, like verse 9 says. He, He you know, in the Christian life, if you read the Old Testament and you see them going in and conquering these kingdoms, Israel was supposed to be this picture. The, the land itself is a picture of an abundant life. But when they got there, it was full of their enemies. It was full of these nations that God chose to judge through them. And when he d- would drive them out of the land. Now, in you and I, the picture is 
we, when we're saved, are not perfected yet. We've been saved. We've been, our, our ticket to heaven is punched, if you want to call it that. But there's still enemies in the land. The abundant Christian life starts the day we start walking with Jesus, but there are enemies in the land. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And God wants to not let you continue to wallow in those things, but he wants you to spend your time killing those things. Like King David was called to, to get the nations out, to drive them out, to utterly destroy them so that later they wouldn't be a hindrance to them. They wouldn't be a temptation to sin. And so he called them to defeat their enemies. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And taking up the cross is putting to death the fleshly nature that's within us. And if you will pursue virtue, if you will pursue brotherly kindness, if you will pursue um, love, self-control, knowledge of Jesus, those things, as you work out, as you supplement your faith with them, will ultimately call you to kill the flesh. It will call you to mortify it, to brutally kill the sinful nature within you. And as you do that, what you'll find is you'll have joy. You'll have the peace that you want, and you'll have the patience, and you'll have patience with others that are in the same spot. But if those things are not in your life, and you don't work out, and you let the flesh grow, if you let the weeds grow in your garden, if you will, guess what happens? It says there in verse 9, you will lack these things, you'll be short-sighted, even to blindness, and you will start to forget that you are cleansed from your old sins. The weeds will start to choke out the fruit of faith. And I tell you what, what happens is not small things. You'd, in the Christian life, you're never in neutral. You're either growing or you're being corrupted. You're compromising. And that happened in the life of David. Very famous story. David, it says in uh, Samuel, and I think, I think it's in Kings, and I'm not going to reference it here today, but I'll tell you the story. David One summer, one spring, when the kings went out to battle, Scripture says, he stayed home. Instead of going out and defeating his enemies, instead of going out and taking out the people that were a danger to the nation of Israel, he stayed home. And instead of battling, he sat around and he was comfortable. And he went up on the roof of his house in the cool of the evening, and he was tempted. He saw Bathsheba bathing, and he coveted her, someone else's wife. And he called for her. His servants brought her to his home. And you know the rest. He sinned. That happened because he wasn't pursuing godliness. Because he wasn't driving out the enemies, he started to play around with ideas. He had idle hands. For us as believers, that can happen. Instead of going out and doing the task that God's laid before us, pursuing a deeper relationship with him, doing the things he's given us to do as believers, being witnesses to God's love, telling people about Jesus that don't know him. If, if we're not doing those things, what happens is we find other things to do, and they become our gods. They become what we find joy in. And what happens is eventually we get to the spot where not only have we committed adultery, but then we put to death or we murder the husband of the person we committed adultery with. And before that happens, we lose our joy and we get become blind and short-sighted. We live for the moment instead of living for the eternal future we've been given in Christ. 
And what happens is we forget that we were cleansed of our old sin and we start to go back to sin for happiness and joy. And what happened with David is that he went for a full year and just tried to hide it. He tried to hide it. He had to be miserable. If you've ever, tried, if you've ever lied and tried to hide it and had to keep hiding it, it's, it's, a, it's an exhausting situation. But we see in Psalm chapter 51 that David, when he was finally outed by the prophet, he, he starts to pray to the Lord. And in Psalm 51, I'm going to go to it and read it. He finally repents. And he says this to the Lord. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He was humbled. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in my inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And then he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Notice he doesn't say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. You delivered me. You saved me. You washed me. You made me clean. You gave me joy. I want to get back there. My sin has robbed me of this season of life. Now I want to get back to where I'm supposed to be. He says, verse 13, then... After he says, uphold me by your generous spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Fruit of repentance, fruit of righteousness, fruit of getting right with the Lord. We cannot teach transgressors God's ways if we're not practicing them ourselves. We cannot teach sinners to be converted to God if we have not truly inwardly been converted and given him lordship over our lives. And one of the best ways to do that is by adding to our faith virtue, by trying to follow the Lord. If you try to follow the Lord, there's a lot of sinful habits in your life that will fall away because number one, you don't have time. But number two, they will no longer be tasteful to you. They'll make you feel sick just being around people doing it. There will be a change in your heart, a change in your desires. So back in Peter, he says, Therefore, brethren, 
Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You won't wonder when you get face to face with Jesus. Is he going to let me in? You will know. You will know that you know that you know. You won't get in there with smoke and robes. You won't get in there by the skin of your teeth. You ever taken a class and you're like, I'm pretty sure I'm close to a a C. I think I'm going to pass this thing. There are certain things you can do to make sure that you definitely don't even have to worry about it. Here I am. I get to come in. I get to graduate. That's what it is. Graduation day. But I want one more thing and then we'll close. He talks about adding these things to your faith. And as doers, as people that produce things, as people are always got stuff to do in order to be ready for the next thing, we're really good at coming up with a list of things to do. But I want to point out that these things he says to add to your faith are the result of spending time with the Lord. They're the result of abiding in Jesus. So turn with me to John chapter 15 for our last reference this morning. John 15. Jesus says this to his disciples, and he says this to us as well. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Christians, you are already clean because of the word that Jesus has spoken to you. He has revealed himself to you. He has saved you. You are accepted in the beloved. You're all that you'll ever be in Christ. But then he says this, Abide in me, and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. The word abide means to accept or act in accordance with. To remain attached. To remain in. If you cut a vine off of a branch, what happens to it? It dies. It doesn't just not produce fruit. It actually withers and turns to dust eventually. It rots. But abiding in Jesus, we will be full of life. We'll produce fruit. We'll be alive. He says, I am the vine, verse 5. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me, you can do nothing. If you're trying to live the Christian life without abiding in Jesus, it's a futile effort. You can't do it. You cannot do the things that Jesus has called you to do without him. I say that because we've had two people in the last couple weeks, prominent Christians. One was a a leader of music in the band Hillsong. One was another guy that was famous starting in the 90s, uh, and, and he wrote books and was a pastor of a megachurch. And both of them recently decided to leave their spouses, and they've come out pub- publicly 
and they've said, I'm no longer a Christian. But they both, at the end of their statements, said, you need to forgive people. You need to love people. I'm just saying that Jesus isn't the only way. But I want to point out that it's because their relationship with Jesus was merely what he could give them in order to make them famous. Their relationship with Jesus was not one of a real, true, one-on-one relationship. Their relationship was actually just about fame and prominence, and it became less and less about their personal devotion to Jesus and knowing him. But they also still saw the character attributes and the things that he did, and they go, you should do these things. But I submit to you, you can't do any of it if you're not abiding in Jesus. Forgiveness cannot be had until you first experience forgiveness yourself. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control are not things that you can produce as works of the flesh. You will always want your kingdom above everyone else's, and so you'll do whatever you can to make that happen. But Jesus says here, the fruit that's produced in your life will be because you're tied to me. If anyone does not abide in me, look at this, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. He says, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. If you abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you, your desires will be in line with my desires, is what he says. You'll want what he wants. You'll ask for things according to his will, and you will be fruitful. So the question becomes, um, do you want what God wants for your life? And and I'm telling you that the way to do what God wants for your life, and if you have the same desires, is to abide in Him. Don't make it about what you do. Make it about whose you are and who you spend time with. You become like the people you hang with. School just started. You are who your friends are. You will become what they are. It's kind of what you soak yourself in. But as believers, it's no different. You will produce fruit based on who you spend time with. And if it's Jesus, guess what? Jesus is going to be glorified. And, and you will not be unfruitful. And you'll make your call and election sure. You will be assured of your salvation because even you will see the fruit from your life. And you'll be like, man, God's good. He's done this. So Father, thank you for Peter. Thank you for his warning to us. Thank you for his discipling of us. Lord, I pray that as we want to walk by faith and not by sight, that you would help us to do everything. You've done everything to make it possible for us to, I don't even like using the word, but to succeed as believers, to be fruitful in our relationship with you. But we also need to respond. We need to add to our faith the things that you've shown us how to do. So Father, help us to abide in you. Help us to trust you with our daily lives. Help us to live these things out and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.